Well, good morning again. So this year, been kind of rough. A pandemic, the threat of recession, uh, an election that's fairly tense, all in the span of about eight months, uh, is kind of a lot for people to take. Uh, just yesterday, uh, here at Northwest, we were informed of a, a positive COVID test uh, was from someone here in the church, uh, and we had to make the decision to suspend our in-person services this morning. Uh, and so everything just feels kind of up in the air this year. Um, it, it's difficult to make plans. It's difficult to uh, just really settle on, on anything. Um, and because of that and a lot of other things, I think it's been harder than usual to find joy this year in 2020. Um, but I have a secret. I have a secret weapon uh, for finding joy in my life, a secret weapon uh, for injecting joy when I'm, when I'm just really down. Uh, this is my go-to. And it's difficult because it's difficult to do in my everyday life. It takes some planning uh, and some foresight, uh, but here it is. Roller coasters. Roller coasters are my secret weapon for injecting joy in my life. That's probably not where you thought I was going with that, not what you thought I was going to say, uh, but, but that's just true. Back at the beginning of this year, uh, back when we were all young and naive and cute, thinking that we could make plans uh, for ourselves moving forward, uh, I was with my family at Disney World for Christmas uh, this past year. Uh, we, we got that trip in just under the wire. And, uh, and man, I love Disney, uh, and, and I especially loved Disney uh, in the wintertime. Uh, I especially loved it when the, the temperatures weren't quite as warm uh, and you could actually wear like a sweatshirt and long pants and, and enjoy uh, just kind of being in the parks. But, but really, uh, I love thrill rides. And Disney isn't known for its thrill rides, but, but at each of the Disney parks, there are a couple. There are a couple rides that, that really get my heart beating. Uh, we also went to Universal Studios, and Universal has more uh, than Disney does. And, and, and just in case you're wondering, uh, Hagrid's Motorbike Adventure is my new favorite roller coaster of all time. It was a lot of fun. It was a newer one down there. Uh, we only had to wait uh, like an hour and a half to, to ride it, so it wasn't too bad. Um, but it was fun at, at Christmas time. We rode uh, everything, uh, a, a lot of stuff we rode twice. Uh, and it was so much fun that we decided we would surprise our kids uh, with a summer vacation, a trip to Cedar Point. Because uh, I grew up going to Cedar Point. I lived in Michigan. It wasn't very far away. And uh, we thought, oh, if they like roller coasters, Cedar Point is the place to go. So we bought our tickets on, on a deal that Cedar Point was doing in February um, and as it turned out, that was a mistake. <laughs> Cedar Point wasn't open in the summer. We, weren't, we were planning to go, and then we couldn't go. But as it all worked out, we were able to still go over Labor Day weekend. We took our kids to Cedar Point. Uh, we uh, wore masks the entire time. They had protocols, uh, checking temperatures and everything on our way in. The enti and by the entire, entire time, I mean on the roller coasters as well, we were wearing masks. So if you open your mouth to scream too much, your mask would like tickle the back of your throat. Um, but on those roller coasters, in the lines, the lines were socially distanced. Uh, I, I felt very safe there, um, and, but we got to ride some roller coasters and inject a little bit more joy in life. It was worth it for me uh, to, to go through all that extra, uh, all those extra procedures and all the extra precautions for safety because riding roller coasters is a blast. It's fun. I love it. And, and just at the beginning here, I, I wanted to share some insight that I've gained uh, over the years of riding roller coasters about the types of people that you, might, that you see on a roller coaster. Usually, someone would fall into one of these five categories uh, of person that you see on a roller coaster. So the most common type is the screamer. 
Uh, and that's the person that you can hear from the parking lot on your way in. Uh, and they're screaming through every part of the ride, uh, every part of the roller coaster. They're just screaming. And it's hard to tell if they're screaming in terror or if they're screaming because they're having fun. But I would guess it's probably a little bit of both. It, it goes back and forth with the screaming. Uh, then I, I notice there's the nervous laugher. Uh, the, the person who handles all of their nerves by just laughing uncontrollably the whole time that they're on the ride. Uh, we have one of those in our family. Uh, and this person is, I think, genuinely afraid of the ride, but they enjoy the, the, the excitement of facing their fears. Uh, and so it just comes out in like giggling the whole time. Um, the veteran, that's the person that you meet in line that, is trying to, that tries to teach you about the history of the roller coaster, like when it was built and how fast it goes and how high it is at its highest point. Um, and while they're on the ride, they're very calm. Like that you can't even tell if they're enjoying it or not. They're just so calm and straightforward and stoic. Uh, but you assume they enjoy it because they're just constantly riding the rides year in and year out. Then there's the hand raiser, uh, the hand raiser, the person who's always dreamed of flying since they were a kid, and they want to show how brave they are uh, to all their friends. And I'll tell you, the, the, one of the most satisfying experiences on a roller coaster is watching the hand raiser flinch when they go under a beam or into a tunnel, something that looks like it's close. Um, that's very satisfying to me. Uh, and then finally, there's the, the why did you make me do this person? And, and, and you can't really identify this person until after you get off the ride when you're in the exit line because they're the person that's aggressively punching their friend in the shoulder, yelling at them, why did you make me do this? But they're also the person that's leading the way to the next roller coaster uh, because they, they love it, but, but they act like they don't. Um, and I just think it's funny to, to evaluate that and think through, like, what kind of rider are you? Uh, I, thinking this week, I tend to be a, a combination of the veteran and the hand raiser. Um, I, I definitely noticed that at Cedar Point with uh, my kids who had never been before. I found myself going through history of roller coasters and explaining things like that to them. Um, but it depends on the situation, I guess. And I only bring it up because I, I can't help but think that 2020, this year, has been a lot like riding a roller coaster. Um, it, it was just full of ups and downs and twists and turns and fear and anxiety about what's coming next um, and whether the ride will hold up or not and, and, and is, is it strong enough? Are we going to fall? Uh, we worry that the restraints aren't tight enough and, and around the next turn, it, we're just going to fling out of, of the ride entirely. Uh, and it seems like the only thing we can do right now is to just close our eyes and hang on tight and pray that it'll just be done soon. And I want to ask this morning, what if, just what if, there's another way to ride in 2020? What if there's another way to ride beyond fear and anxiety and just praying that it'll end, hoping that it's over? What if you could find joy? Even on the uncertain road, even in the uncertainty, even not knowing what's around the next corner or, or, or whether you'll go upside down through the other side of the next tunnel, what if you could find joy on this ride that is 2020? And in our text this morning, you know, we've been going through this series called The Uncertain Road, and today we come to John chapter 16, right at the end, Jesus promises us joy. But not just any joy, not the joy of, you know, every once in a while I get to ride a roller coaster and it makes me really happy that day. It's a permanent joy. It's a joy that no one can take away from us. And that, to me, sounds pretty good. Right now, in particular, a permanent joy that no one, no circumstance could take away sounds pretty good. 
And so we've been drilling down the last few weeks on, on John chapter 14 through 17. Uh, it's this, this long piece of what Jesus said to his disciples before, right before he went to the cross um, and just preparing them for the uncertain road that lay ahead. And today uh, we're in the, the last half of John chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 16 and we're going to walk through the rest of this chapter together this morning. So, excuse me, in verse 16, Jesus went on to say, In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you'll see me no more. Then after a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about that. And so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant? When I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. That's a third time that has been repeated, by the way. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Now Jesus is talking to his disciples here on the night before he was killed and he keeps repeating this word in Greek that translates to a little while. In a little while you won't see me, but then in a little while you will see me again. And the disciples are understandably confused by it. They, they, they don't get what Jesus means. Uh, they don't understand how long a little while will be. That, that doesn't seem like a very definite measure of time. And, and Jesus is trying to reassure them that their separation won't be long, just for a little while. But instead of feeling reassured, the disciples just feel confused. And in hindsight, we can see that Jesus was talking about the things that are about to happen to him. He's going to be arrested, he'll be charged, he'll be beaten and crucified, and the disciples would see him no more, but only for a little while. Against all odds, that would only last for a little while. What what usually is permanent for Jesus only lasted for a little while because death wasn't permanent for Jesus. And the disciples don't have a category to help them make sense of that, to help them make sense of a Messiah who would die, first of all, because that was not in their paradigm. Uh, A Messiah who would die and then rise from the dead, that wasn't in anybody's paradigm, that had never happened, and then ascend to heaven so that the Holy Spirit could come live inside them. It's it's completely confusing. Uh, A Messiah who who will die instead of lead them to overthrow Rome doesn't make any sense. A Messiah who will rise from the dead doesn't make any sense because who does that? And then after he dies and rises from the dead, he then leaves again. He ascends to heaven so that the Holy Spirit can come live inside them. It just doesn't make sense. And it's confusing enough for us to look back at it and try to make sense of it. But for the disciples who had totally no idea what was going on, this idea was just foreign to them in the moment. And really nothing short of going through the experience would help them to understand what Jesus means. And Jesus knows they're confused. He elaborates in verse 20, and I'm not sure how much it helps them, but it can help us. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And when Jesus died, 
the world celebrated. The world celebrated, and the, and the disciples mourned. The disciples scattered. The disciples were crushed and devastated. They went back to fishing. They were hiding in an upper room, but their sorrow turned to joy when they discovered that, that Jesus wasn't defeated by the grave, that death wasn't final and permanent in Jesus' case. And so their grief turns to joy. And Jesus compares what's about to happen, what's coming up, to a, to a woman in childbirth, uh, that there's pain and even trauma during the experience of a baby being born. When, when, my, when my first child uh, was, was born, uh, I watched my wife experience pain, uh, and she threatened trauma on me, uh, especially if I didn't stop telling her when the contractions were coming. I was watching the monitor, I'm like, oh, that looks like a big one, and she threatened to knock me out. So uh, I, the trauma, the threat of trauma was very real, but watching her go through the, the pain and the trauma of that experience, and not just the physical pain, but the pain of, of the intimacy, of, of, of a closeness of uh, a human being growing inside of you, and then all of a sudden that changes uh, over the course of a moment, or an hour, or 36 hours, depending on what the case may be, right? Um, and Jesus compares it to that, the pain and anguish uh, of that moment, um, but in a little while, the pain is passed. In a little while, there's a, 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 a baby born into the world. There's life. Um, and this is a common metaphor throughout the Old Testament that, that illustrates the anguish that Israel would have to endure before God's wonder and blessing can finally be experienced, this idea of, of labor pains. Uh, and uh, Jesus is just trying to prepare his disciples for this moment that's coming soon. This moment of pain and loss and grief that they're about to experience when Jesus dies. And Jesus says, your grief will turn to joy after a little while. When you experience something brand new. Resurrection. Resurrection is brand new. Not that it's never happened before. Uh, we know that Jesus did resurrection miracles. Lazarus was the most prominent of those resurrection miracles. But it's never happened like this. It's never happened. Jesus is dead. Who's there to, to perform the miracle? It's never happened like this. And, and this is something new, and it changes everything. It's not just one more event in a series of events that, that help us understand what Jesus is like, that kind of show us who Jesus is. It, this is the event. It's the thing. This is the show. It's the main event. It, it's historical confirmation that, that God has invaded our world with his presence, and, and that God has started to set things right again. He started with death. By overturning death, he started to set things right again. He, started, he, he changed the trajectory of the way the world was moving and started moving it back towards Eden, back towards what he intended by defeating death and reversing the trajectory and dealing with our sin. The resurrection is everything. And Paul understood this that's why 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. Without the resurrection, this is a sham. It's useless. The resurrection is everything. Without the resurrection, the grief and the sorrow that Jesus is predicting for a little while is going to last way longer than a little while. Without the resurrection, this grief and sorrow isn't a little while. Grief and sorrow would be our way of life. And you can look around and see that it's true. Those who don't live with the hope of resurrection, grief and sorrow and pain and mourning and difficulty, 
how do you deal with it without the hope of the resurrection? And then we come to verse 22. And I want to I stay in verse 22 for a while. Jesus' death is right around the corner. His disciples are going to experience grief and loss and pain. But then, in verse 22, then Jesus says, I will see you again. I will rise from the dead. I will come and find you, and you will rejoice. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus rose from the dead. He showed up in a a locked room where his disciples were hiding in fear and in grief. And Jesus showed them his hands, and he showed them his side. and, And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw him. John says, their their grief turned to joy, just like Jesus said that it would. And then Jesus promised, no one will take away your joy. It can't be destroyed. It can't be lost. Even if everything around you is falling apart, this joy will last. This joy is permanent. So how can Jesus make such a guarantee? How can he promise that no one will take away your joy? Well, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at this joy and asking two questions. What makes it permanent and what makes it joy? Two simple questions, and I want to start with what makes it permanent. What what makes this joy something that no one can take away, that it's permanent, that it's everlasting joy? No one will ever take away your joy if your joy comes from being with Jesus. That's because the resurrection means Jesus will never die again. Jesus died, death didn't stick, and now Jesus is alive and he won't ever die again. Jesus will never be taken from us again. Not even for a little while, like what he told his disciples. He is here to stay. And so joy is permanent because Jesus is permanent. Joy is permanent because Jesus will never be taken away from us again. And if your joy comes from something else, something other than Jesus, if your joy comes from financial security or good health or the results of an election or even from relationships with other people around you, there is no guarantee that that joy will last. In fact, I would venture to guess that if your experience is anything like mine, there is a guarantee that it won't that joys like those just don't last. Jesus is the only permanent source of joy because Jesus is the only one who has conquered death. He can't be taken away from us. Look at the sequence of thought here in verse 22. I will see you again and you will rejoice. So why will they rejoice? Because Jesus will be with them again. And then it says, no one will ever take away your joy. So what joy can never be taken away? The joy of being with Jesus. That's the joy that's guaranteed forever. No other joy is guaranteed to us to last forever. Other joys are fragile and fleeting and uncertain. If your joy is mainly in money or success or family or hobbies or relationships or sexuality or popularity or sports or politics, it won't last The joy of being with Jesus is the only joy that can last forever because Jesus has been raised from the dead and will never be taken from us again. But that's only half. That's only half of what makes the joy permanent. Two things have to be true if our joy is going to be permanent. One is that the source of our joy lasts forever, that Jesus is permanent. But the other thing that needs to be true is that you last forever. 
you have to be permanent also. Because if you don't last forever, then your joy can't last forever. Jesus has to be permanent, but so do you. And there's good news on that front too. Back in John chapter 14, right where we started in this series, uh, there's a pretty similar thought to the one we're looking at in in chapter 16 today. Uh, In verse 19, Jesus said, Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. So the resurrection of Jesus means that not only will Jesus live forever, but that you will also live forever. If Jesus is the source of your joy, you will also live forever. At the tomb of his friend Lazarus, I mentioned him earlier, Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Not me, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. If the source of your joy will never die, and you will never die, then your joy can never be taken away. Nothing can separate you from the love of God through Jesus. Not trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or angels or demons or the present or the future or death or life or any powers or height or depth or anything else in all creation. Nothing can take your joy if your joy is in Jesus. Your joy is permanent. Because Jesus is permanent and you are permanent. And so that's what makes joy permanent. But what makes it joy? Because I, I think we can, we can get into a place where we believe that Jesus is permanent, Jesus is forever, and we believe that I can also live forever because Jesus promised that it's true, but we can still feel we, like we don't have joy. We can still feel like things are closed, the walls are closing in around us, and we can still feel like it's just constantly grief and pain. So we know what makes it permanent, but, but what makes it joy? Permanent joy starts when we see Jesus and when we're seen by Jesus. That's a really interesting thing in this passage where Jesus says, in a little while you will see me and like says that, like that gets repeated over and over again as the disciples question it. But then later in verse 22, Jesus says, and I will see you again and you will rejoice. This idea that, that of seeing Jesus but then also Jesus seeing me is a big one. Seeing the Lord is the wording that the Bible uses over and over again on Easter. Uh, When we're reading about the resurrection accounts and when people encounter the resurrected Jesus, uh, over and over again, the Bible Bible says that they saw the Lord. Uh, You know, that's the language that they use. John uses this language from the start of his gospel. All the way back in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John gets even clearer about the value of seeing Jesus in his letter later in the New Testament. In 1 John 1.1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands and have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So when we see Jesus, when we experience his power and his grace and his love in our lives, And when Jesus sees us in our sin and in our weakness and he loves us anyway, it leads us to joy. So so what is joy that has Jesus as its source, it's permanent, 
What does it look like in our lives? Well, I want to I read through the rest of John chapter 16 because I think Jesus lays out a, a kind of a building blocks on each other about what this joy looks like uh, throughout the rest of the chapter. Uh, so we'll pick back up in verse 23. In that day, uh, you will no longer ask me anything. In that day when your, your grief turns to joy, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you don't even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming and in fact has now come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will, you will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So the first thing that Jesus talks about here is the joy of effective prayer. He says, my Father will give you whatever you ask for in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Now, it's not that the disciples had never asked God for things in prayer before, but praying to God in Jesus' name is kind of a new concept in the New Testament right here. Um, when they see Jesus again, after he dies and he's resurrected, resurrected, it will change the way that they pray. And praying in Jesus' name, I, I feel like, what, like when we're kids, it feels like, like a magical formula thing that we have to tack on at the end so God can hear what we say. And that's really not what it is. It's, it's not some magic words in, so that we can get what we want. Praying in Jesus' name is, is praying in line with the will of God. Praying for things that Jesus would pray for. Uh, when we ask for something in Jesus' name, we're relying on the, the power of his resurrection to, to accomplish his goals in order to bring glory to him. So praying in Jesus' name is, is praying for things that represent Jesus, that represent what Jesus would want would, and would do and would say to the world that we live in. And, and connecting to God through that kind of praying, through praying that closely identifies us with Jesus, with his heart for people, with his compassion, with, with the things that he wants to accomplish in this world, that kind of praying brings us joy. And then the, the next thing that Jesus talks about uh, is the joy of understanding. He says, though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I'll tell you plainly about my Father. And the disciples won't see Jesus for a little while, but when they see him again, after the resurrection, at last, finally, they will understand all these things that, that seemed so cryptic that Jesus has been saying to them. When they finally see it for themselves, they'll understand it. That's exactly what happened uh, in Luke 24. Uh, the two disciples are, are walking on the, the road to a town called Emmaus. Uh, they're trying to figure out what happened to Jesus, uh, trying to make sense of the events that have just taken place uh, where Jesus, that, that, that landed Jesus on a cross. And, and then Jesus himself uh, walked up behind them uh, and, and 
engaged them in conversation and he started explaining everything to them, uh, clearly walking them through the Old Testament and explaining uh, how it all worked. Uh, And they still didn't really recognize him even in that moment when he was walking with them. But when they sat down to break bread with him, when they sat down and shared a meal with him that is very reminiscent of a communion uh, situation, their eyes were opened and they recognized him because they, they saw him. They finally saw Jesus. Seeing Jesus clears up our confusion. It, it wasn't the que- asking him all the questions and hearing his explanation that cleared up the confusion. When they finally saw Jesus for who he was, that he's not dead and he is alive, seeing Jesus working and active in your life clears up confusion. And we learned earlier in in this sermon series that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside us and leads us into understanding. And the understanding that God provides us brings us joy. And then there's the joy of access. Jesus says, in that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I Uh, came from God. So until the point of Jesus' death on the cross, people always needed a a mediator to stand between them and a holy God. Uh, In in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, there was a high priest uh, who existed to offer sacrifices on their behalf uh, to to come, not to come between them and God, but uh, to be a go-between, to take their requests to God and to to translate God's forgiveness to them. Uh, but, But when Jesus died, the heavy curtain in the temple that separated God's presence from God's people was torn in half. It was, it was gone, it was ripped apart, that now God's presence and God's people uh, have nothing between, have nothing uh, separate, separating them. Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Like the song says, now nothing is holding us back from you. Nothing is holding us back from direct access to God. And that access brings joy. And then finally, the the last thing I see here is that there's joy, the the joy of peace in our troubles. In, In verse 33, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. When Jesus speaks of peace and trouble in the same breath, he forces us to kind of think carefully about what this peace really is. It's not a peace that comes from the absence of enemies or conflict. It's not peace the way we would normally think of it, where there's no more conflict, which, and so it means that we have peace. Because Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. And if you're anything like that, like me, I feel like that's been especially evident this year. In this world, you will have trouble. But the peace Jesus gives us is, is freedom from fear and anxiety in the midst of the struggle. It's easy to have peace when there's no trouble, when there's no conflict, when everything's fine. But Jesus promises peace within the storm. He, he doesn't say have courage and you will then overcome the world. He doesn't say, take heart, you have it inside, you've had it inside you all along. It's not a Hollywood film. He he doesn't say, you know, rise up to the challenge, defeat the obstacles. It's not a pep talk uh, to, to inspire us to great acts. 
We've tried to overcome the world. We're super bad at it. We are just not good at overcoming things on our own. We're really bad at it. And thank God it's not up to us, right? Jesus has already overcome the world on our behalf. His victory is our victory. And that's the difference, by the way, between the Christian faith and every other faith system in the world. Uh, Faith systems, basically every faith system gives us like a moral code that we need to follow. Do this, don't do this. This is what's right, this is what's wrong. Christianity does too. Do these things, don't do these things, right and wrong. How do do you define what's right and wrong in life? There's value there. But the only faith system that actually gives people a way to successfully live out the moral code is Christianity. Jesus gives us the way, and the way is Jesus. The way is that he successfully lived out the moral code, and he is able to translate, to transfer his righteousness onto us uh, and, and his victory onto us so that we can claim it. He's not asking us, go out and overcome the world. He already did that. He's asking us to abide in him all the way back at the beginning. Remember, I am the vine, you are the branches. Just stay in me and you'll have everything that you need. Jesus has already overcome the world. He's already won our peace. Even when we're surrounded by trouble, peace is available. And that, that peace brings us great joy. So no matter how uncertain the road may seem, If you keep your eye on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, no one can take away your joy. It's permanent. That's why we take communion together every week at Northwest. We take it as a reminder to keep our focus on Jesus, to focus our attention and our hearts on the thing that matters, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave to become the source of joy that no one can ever take away from us. And so if you have supplies to take communion at home, uh, I would encourage you to to take some time to reflect on on how Jesus has brought uh, permanent joy into your life uh, before you you take communion. I'm gonna pray for us this morning um, and and, uh, then we'll just kind of wrap up and and be done. Um, But again, if you have have supplies, wanna take communion, observe a moment of reflection, um, that that would be a, a great thing. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful this morning that my joy doesn't rest in all of these different temporary things that that are ever-changing in the world around us, that my joy doesn't rest uh, in in, in these things that are so fleeting and temporary. I'm thankful that that you have given given us a path to a, a permanent joy, a joy that no one can ever take away. No circumstance could take it away. No person can take it away because it is found in Jesus. And so, Father, I just pray that throughout this week, with all the things that are going on in the world around us, that we would keep our eyes on Jesus, that we would live in and just soak in and bask in the permanent joy of being with Jesus. It's in his name. Amen.